You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from your high school lit class, we we'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Hey everyone, before we get into this episode, we'd like to include a trigger warning. We will be talking about themes of violence and suicide in this episode. So if that's not for you, you can skip those parts or this episode as a whole, and we'll see you next time. On this season of The Novelty, we are going around the world. Our theme is around the world in eight tea books. It's very punny. We love a pun around here. And this episode, we are talking about pachinko. Pachinko was our pick for Korea. In our last episode, we started off a discussion about it, and in this episode, we are continuing it with some special guests, Marvin and Vera from Books and Boba. Hi. Hi, everyone. Welcome. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, I mean, we're excited to be here. I mean, it's usually just Marvin and me, so it's really <laughs> nice to have another bookish podcast uh, chime in with bookish opinions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So a uh, little bit about Books and Boba. They're a book club and podcast dedicated to spotlighting books written by authors of Asian descent. Marvin Yu is a Los Angeles-based digital producer. Before becoming a podcast producer, he had several years working to put on live and digital events across the country supporting Asian American creatives and artists. And Rira Yu is a writer with a focus on Asian diaspora culture and entertainment. She was a former online editor of the Koream Journal. And she also has contributed to other publications featuring um, Asian American content. So... We would love for you to tell us and our audience a little bit about Books and Boba and how it started. How did it start? Um, uh, so Rira and I have known each other for a while now. We both used to work for Collaboration, which was a nonprofit that supports Asian Americans in the arts. Um, Rira ran our blog for like a year or two, right? Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. before um, moving on to do Coriam uh, more more full-time. And I was the lead producer there, so we, we would cross paths lots, and we would be, see each other at, like, community events and, like, you know, all the Asians in LA kind of hang out together sometimes uh, back in the day. So we would just see each other at, like, a barbecue or, like, a house party here and there. And I distinctly remember seeing Rira tweet angrily one day about how, about an interaction she had. Was it on a plane or an airport? No, it was actually at an event. It was at a community event, and this was actually said by an Asian guy. I like, I, I was thinking about this memory like not that long ago, so it's like coming back to me so clearly. But it was for an Asian American, uh, some kind of networking event. Someone asked me, "Hey, what do you do?" And I told them I'm a writer, and they said, "Oh, do you write books?" And I said, "Um, no, I'm not an author. I I focus on blogs and articles." And he said, oh, I don't know why I asked you if you were an author, because there's not a lot of Asian authors out there. And um, <laughs> I was just so mad. I just had to bite my tongue and be like, how can you say this about our own people? You know, and this was back in what, 2016? It was 2016. So 
yeah, the sympathizer won the Pulitzer Prize. I'm like, what are you yeah. what are you talking about? So um, I think the next day I angrily tweeted or posted on Facebook saying, hey, I want to start a book club where we focus on uh, books by Asian authors just to show that we exist and we do have a wide catalog. And uh, Marvin was like, hey, uh, would you mind if we make this into a podcast? And I said, yes, without thinking about how much work it would <laughs> be. So here we are seven years later. Yeah. At the time, um, I had just started producing podcasts for collaboration. So I had the equipment on hand. So I was like, and I, I had been listening to the Sword and Laser podcast for a few years, which is um, a podcast featuring focusing on fantasy and science fiction books. So the concept of a Asian American book club podcast was like on my mind of things I wanted to do. And so Rira just gave me the perfect opportunity to capitalize. Plus, I was able to harness her <laughs> anger to like turn into motivation, which was great, too. Um, so we started a podcast September 2016, mere months before um, the election and everything took on a whole different meaning. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we can definitely relate to the podcast being more than we expected. It takes up a lot of our time. <laughs> but that is amazing that you took that comment and like did something so incredible with it. I have to say I've I follow your show. I've seen I've listened to several episodes and I really appreciate how wide your breadth of coverage is. Like you really go all across Asia, the continent, and I know that from personal experience and from other people's experiences, a lot of times using the word term Asian. I think some people have a very specific idea and it often centers on East Asian narratives. And I've just seen you guys cover like South Asia, Southeast Asia, kind of Central Asia, the Middle East and your work. And I think that's really amazing that you're highlighting all these different ethnic groups and cultural entities. Yeah, I think that comes from our years of just working in the Asian American community where, you know, the term Asia is very broad. And so we felt that if we were going to claim to be a podcast featuring Asian diaspora stories, that we should cast the widest net because um, we don't want to, you know, accidentally ex exclude anyone. I, and I know this is something that gives Rira a lot of anxiety when we're picking books. It's like trying to make sure that we manage to keep some semblance of like a balance in our in our book picks. Yeah, I definitely go through mental gymnastics when we select books. I'm like, okay, like, what did we read uh, two months ago? What genre? Are we focusing too much on East Asians? Do we have to uh, go back to West Asia, South Asia? What about Canadian authors? What about other diasporan authors? So I definitely do take a lot of time um, picking the books for our book club. But ultimately, it's just, you know, what are we interested in reading? What are we interested in expanding because it really it's not fun if you're reading the same types of books over and over again and I'm sure you guys have had the same issues but you know there's like a subgenre of books that take place in Asia that's like specifically about like just trauma and just uh so true yeah and I mean this is really funny because we're going to be talking about pachinko and it has a lot of trauma in it <laughs> yeah it's like trauma, American dream, and you can only read so many of those stories, uh, rinse and repeat over and over again. So we really do try to reach out to as many different backgrounds and stories as possible. But yeah, that's just the fun part of being in a book club. Yeah, it's definitely a difficult feat to pick books to talk about on the podcast for this season, especially 
we were trying to cover as much as possible, but we had already set to only do eight books. You can't cover the whole world in eight books. So no, it, you can't. It was definitely a hard decision. But yes, we did end up with Pachinko for our Korea pick. And so shifting this discussion towards that, what were your initial thoughts about Pachinko when you read it? I know you guys released a podcast episode about it back in 2018, so it's been a while. But how about the differences between now and then and you're reflecting on it in the last several years? You go first, Vera, because you're you're more close. No, you go first. <laughs> I think my thoughts about the book hasn't changed too much. Um, I think it's a really well-written book. I think it's a really important book because it showcases the experiences of diaspora and immigration that's not centered in America, which is really important because the movement of people is, is global. It's, you know, not every story. And it's important to know that, like, other countries can treat their immigrants just as shittily as America can, right? Um, and I think what the book has given me is kind of more context on the ideas of citizenship and how, like, something that you don't realize is birthright citizenship is a kind of uniquely an American thing. Like, not all countries have it. So um, this brings me back to a story. So I got married a year ago. And this spring, we had our wedding reception. And we were trying to get my wife's uncle to come over because he hasn't seen her in, like, a decade. He wanted to come. And he wasn't able to get a visa because he is ethnically Chinese but living in Korea. And even though he was born and raised there, he's not a citizen. He's not allowed to have citizenship. And the U.S., would not grant him a visa to come visit us for the wedding because he was not a citizen. So they were afraid he would just come and stay. And so it's kind of wild that like, and when I heard that story, I was like, oh, that's just like Pachinko, right? So it's kind of just interesting to think about the idea of citizenship, what we're entitled to, and what we think of as like a basic human right isn't basic at all. Yeah, I I didn't know about the depth of that until I read the book. And um, Neha and I are both U.S. citizens, which I feel like I've taken for granted a lot of my life. And, you know, reading a lot of these immigrant stories and stories from around the world, you kind of take that into everything. Yeah, and I totally relate to that. I just got married two months ago, and my husband's parents got – they live in India, his family, and his parents got a visa to come to the wedding, but his sister didn't. It just didn't make any sense at all. That's a thought that I think about a lot as well. Yeah. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) But yeah, so talking about this birthright citizenship and kind of in the story, it goes through the culturally and ethnically Korean characters who then have to live in Japan. Um, I think, Rira, in your podcast episode, you had talked a little bit about your personal experience with similar issues. If you feel comfortable, are you okay sharing that? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally comfortable. I'm an open book. So I am... I am Korean American. I am technically generation 1.75. So I came to the States when I was like three years old. Uh, both sides of my family, they were freedom fighters. They were independence activists for uh, Korean independence. And uh, Korea was under Japanese rule from 1910 to pretty much like 1945. And then we didn't get independence until. 1948 that's when the u.s troops had kind of like moved out most of their military by then so i have a very personal bias i guess when it comes to um, colonial history when it comes to japan and uh, korea you know it's really funny to think about like 
what my initial reaction was to reading Pachinko the first time, as opposed to like now. And um, five, six years later, I lost my grandfather and my grandmother um, just to like think about what they went through. They lived through colonial times and they lived through the war. And so many of their stories I kind of have heard from secondhand. I haven't really heard heard it directly from their own mouths. So, so like reading Pachinko again, it was, I don't know, it hit harder. Uh, there were definitely parts where I started to tear up again. And um, my paternal grandfather, he went to Waseda. So at the same school that uh, Noah goes to, I actually thought that he dropped out, but he did graduate. And um, I found out that he was one of the few Koreans who did graduate from this very elite school. And I just think about all of the oppression that he faced. And as great as my grandfather was, I think about how much greater my grandmother was. Because I think about how he got his education abroad and uh, was trying to make all these changes for Korea, but she was raising her children and she was trying to make sure that they survive. And a lot of those stories about women in Korea during that time, it's not written in history. It's unsung. And um, so like, Going back and reading this book and understanding, oh, okay, like the women in my family that came before me, they were super strong. They were much stronger than like I could have ever imagined. So there was like a new layer of appreciation for them uh, for the second time that I read this book. Yeah, that's really beautiful to hear. I, I think that this book also does talk a lot about the woman in the stories, because the main character is Sunja. And it, not directly, but it does encompass a lot of motherhood concepts. And same with Kingi. She's not a mother. She doesn't have children, but she kind of steps in to take care of Sunja's kids and is a mother to them when she cannot be. Um, did you have any specific opinions about motherhood within this book? So I've listened to a lot of interviews with Min Jin Lee because this was a very long writing process for her. I think it took her like 10 years to rewrite her manuscript. And um, originally her first draft for this book, uh, it was written in Solomon's POV, like that he was the main character, that was it. Hmm. And then it wasn't until she interviewed all these people, all, all these Zainichi people in, in Japan, ethnically, ethnic Koreans in Japan, that um, she realized that the backbone of this community were mothers who were raising their families almost like single-handedly. And um, I don't know, just, just the fact that she pretty much rewrote her manuscript from page one and added just a bunch of female characters who are just so resilient in their own way but were so ordinary at the same time it was it was pretty badass to read <laughs> yeah i felt like she did a really good job with the breadth of her female characters i think there's a lot of writers you read that like stick to a trope with 
certain characters where they want to be strong in a certain way. And I feel like she, with all of the women and girls in the book, went through a whole range of what it means to be strong and what it means to be weak in certain moments. Um, so I really appreciated that. And we had mentioned Lee, we had wanted to talk a little bit more about her because this wasn't her, this was her second book, but it did seem like she went into so much detail. And I was reading a little bit about how she researched for the book. And I think the idea was, was planted in her when she was listening to a college lecture. And it was about this community in Japan. And then she went and she talked to a lot of the Sainichi population to get their stories. And then that original story of the suicide by a young boy, she included in one of her chapters as a preface to Noah committing suicide. So have, have either of you read her other books? I've only read this one. Unfortunately, I've only read yeah. this, uh, this one. It's on my Kindle, but... Oh. <laughs> Because I was like, I like Pachinko. I'll read it, but I haven't. I haven't got. It's really when you're running a book club podcast and you're also interviewing authors, like to read their books too. It's kind of hard to find time to like read for yourself. Prioritize your own books. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Totally get that. I'm excited for her third book though, because it's about American hagwons, which are cram schools, and um, like that's a personal experience that I've gone through, and I'm like, yeah, like Koreans are a little bit. They, they kind of go nuts when it comes to higher education and competitiveness. So I'm really excited to see like what her take on it is going to be. So yeah, like Minjin Lee, she has been writing about different aspects of Korean diaspora. And it's just like so interesting to me that she decided to write a book about... Um, the Korean-Japanese diaspora when she is Korean-American. And it makes me wonder if she was, if she would have been able to write this book if she wasn't part of the diaspora. Yeah, that's a good point. Like to have kind of this outsider, but still insider role in this community to be able to then pick out like the different aspects of it. Yeah, like the book got translated into Japanese, like, during COVID, I think it was like back in like 2020. And then the Korean translation came out last year. So Ooh, that's yeah, so interesting. So, yeah. So like just like reading the response from uh, those two countries, it's been it's been very interesting for like the Koreans. They, a lot of people have said, oh, like I understand my parents better now. So like more conversations on like what it was like living under colonial times has uh, come up more in conversations. And then, like, for the Zainichi community, like, they're finally seeing, you know, themselves in literature. And it's kind of written in a more, I guess, like, less prejudiced mm-hmm. lens um, because there are stereotypes about uh, Zainichi in, in Japan. So um, getting a different, getting an outsider's view on the on the community, it's it's been interesting for that community to be able to read about their experience. So yeah, yeah, like, so this book came out in like 2017, I think. So to see how long this book has like, lasted in its impact, and it's continuing to impact readers. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's one of the amazing things I think about books like this is beyond just a good story or like characters you can relate to. It feels like it might be opening up a lot of dialogues with 
within families and within communities that may not have otherwise happened. Neha and I had this discussion on the last book that we did, which was the Great Indian Novel. And it talks about the Indian independence movement and then partition afterwards. And we talked about how it sparked so many conversations with our family that we may not have had otherwise. And so that's awesome that even outside of being like a great story, it's also something that is going to foster those relationships and help bring more of those stories out. Yeah, it's a cool trend that we've been seeing in Asian American media in general is like the stories that are like moving on from my parents to understand to our parents were people too, once upon a time, right? Yeah. We saw that in, you know, everything mm-hmm. ever all at once and like um, Pachinko. We, we see that in a lot of books these days too, which is realizing that our parents were young once. They also made mistakes and they also were fun people at some point, even though it's hard to believe. Yeah. And this was your first time reading Pachinko, right, for you guys? Yeah. So, like, what was that like, having heard so much praise for this book? And, you know, it's it's a huge book. It's, like, 500 pages. Like, w- did you feel daunted? I didn't feel daunted by the size. I think I, like, knew how big it was going to be going into it. But this book has just been on my to-read list forever. I think when it first came out... Neha knows this. I'm very, very influenced by the covers of books. And I saw the cover and I thought it would be something I would like. It just felt like it would be character based, maybe a little literary. And I never got around to reading it. And then same thing for Neha. And so then we finally were like, let's just read it together. I bet there's a lot that's going to be in here. I I really enjoyed reading it. Yeah, that's the amazing part about this podcast, I think, is There's so many books that are on our TBR that we just never get around to. And so we definitely take this as an opportunity. And I'm glad that we that we got to read it. Um, One of the questions I had about the book specifically, like the characters and plot um, that we didn't get around to talking to last time was how the book treats wealth and opportunity. I was able to go to a panel recently where Min Jin Lee talks about, she wrote the introduction for a new edition of The Great Gatsby. And she talks a lot about the American dream and this concept of wealth and opportunity. And someone in that forum asked whether she saw Noah as a Gatsby-like figure with wanting to fit in and kind of this concept of the American dream that you can never really achieve. Um, was there anything that stood out to you that might be different than an immigrant's experience in a Western country compared to the story or something that said something to you? I think um, for Pachinko, you can't take it out of the cultural context of Mm -hmm. honor, I guess. (laughs) A lot of the characters, they have this very strict notion of, you know, of honor and respect and being pure at the same time. And... For the women in this book, they really don't have that choice. Mm-hmm. It's either like like the men kind of have the choice and the luxury of choosing honor, choosing their ego over um, survival, over their family. Whereas the women, they just kind of have to choose how they're going to suffer and just like go to distance and figure out how, how they're going to keep their family alive. So that's something that I notice that was kind of different from like Asian American immigrant novels because mm-hmm. like I, I feel like we we don't really have that that pressure that honor that I don't know I don't I don't know how else to describe it Marvin do you 
Do you kind of get what I'm yeah, trying to I say? Mean, the interesting thing is, like, most of the key characters in this book, by, like, modern-day standards, are very conservative, right? They live in a very conservative society. They have very conservative views. And, you know, as the generation moves on, they get maybe a little bit more progressive as they become more, quote-unquote, westernized, right? Like, Solomon is sent to America to study, and and he seems like the most, I guess, you know, well, he is the youngest, and so the most, the most like removed from Korea of the of the family. It's interesting that they zeroed it on Noah as the Gatsby figure because I think that fits Hansu a little bit more because he's actually like kind of putting on the mask yeah, of like right. yeah. you know a wealthy Japanese adjacent person, right? right. Like Noah is trying to chase that, but Noah is Noah is kind of shackled by his his own sense of honor and his own sense of purity, which is. I can't believe I'm the son of like a yakuza like mob mob boss, and so now I have to like live in shame because of it. Which, you know, something that I definitely like keyed in on re- revisiting the book is like most of the male characters kind of suck. Like they all kind of they're all selfish and they all kind of make things hard for the women around them. Yeah. And you know, Noah, even though he's nice and soft and quiet, like he's a soft boy, but he still kind of sucks, right? Because he made a very selfish decision because of his own sense of morality and honor. Yeah, and in fact... Which is very similar to I mean, his... you can't really blame him, though, because, I mean, like, his, da- his dad was a pastor. And <laughs> he didn't have a choice. Already he didn't have a having, <laughs> Yeah, really, he didn't have a chance. I mean, like, you grow up in a religion where, you know, it's it's very clear to you that you have to be pure you have to like cleanse yourself of sin but then how do you cleanse yourself of i guess like who you are dna wise so it's so i can't really blame noah for making the choices he makes in this book i just feel a lot of pity for him um because that could have easily been any of us a couple like a couple decades ago. It's just that now prejudices have gotten less visibly oppressive and um, the world has opened up a little bit more. So like for me, like I really can't uh, just look at Noah and be like, you suck. You, <laughs> you're you a selfish character because- I feel like, like that's literally <laughs> what I said in my la- our last episode. <laughs> Because I think I, for me, it seemed like this was always his plan. Like he knew that he couldn't hide from his family for long periods of time. And so he had a plan in set that when he was found is when he would make the choice to end his life. And so in my head, I'm like, well, if you know that this is going to happen and you had this plan, then why get married and have children and have your children suffer without a father and I feel like it just like he was very impulsive but that didn't seem like a character trait that I saw in Noah when we were learning about him in his younger years he didn't seem like an impulsive character to me yeah this was one of the things that Neha and I I think disagreed on a little bit because to me it didn't seem like he had a plan it seemed like his his struggles internally were building, 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 building. And then this was the culmination. But yeah, it, like comparing him to his, his father, not his biologic father, but Isak is kind of the only character that we see is completely pure or is told that way. And he dies a martyr's death. So then that compared to Noah is 
it brings up all those struggles all over again. Yeah, and Isaac dies a martyr's death, but he put his family in such a su- such a lurch, you know? So yeah. can you really say that even though he he was pure and he stuck by his convictions, can you still call him like would would we be able to call him selfish or you know selfless? It's I guess it's just like a question of um, what your moral code is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting when I was reading it also that the the portrayal of Isaka and his brother Mozasu, who kind of if we were to map onto like our own Asian American experiences, is kind of like the difference between assimilation and like rebellion against that, right? Like Noah decides to give up his Korean identity to become fully Japanese, but isn't able to do so. Whereas Mozasu is more like, you know what, if you're not going to accept me, I'm going to just like make my own path and ends up being like successful at it. Um, I thought that was really interesting, like perspective we can have as like immigrants ourselves and seeing those two paths before us, right? Which I think we see here in the West in immigrant families, even generationally, where maybe our parents' generation is more likely to kind of assimilate and, you know, not make a fuss. But a younger generation or a later generation in terms of how many um, generations have lived here might feel more that they are just going to be who they are. With Noah, I, I say this a lot in our podcast, but just me personally, I try to see myself in a lot of the characters And when the character makes a decision that I don't, can't relate to, I get very frustrated. In this book, I feel like Musasu was my favorite character. He was just kind of like, I don't care about all these people. I don't care about what other people think. I'm just going to live my life. And Noah wasn't like that. And we had this discussion a little bit on our last episode, but didn't get into it too much. But it was just the concept of nurture versus nature and whether... Um, on why Mozasu and Noah had such differences in their personality, though they did mostly grow up as either Isaac as their father or no father at all. Yeah, I definitely agree on the nature versus nurture. And I actually do think about it quite often on, like, what do the Zainichi feel like? Because for so long... They were stateless, like they didn't have a Japanese passport and the Korean passport was for a unified Korea and that doesn't exist. And they weren't able to get um, any jobs in the public sector. So the only way they could really carve out a life for themselves is through through running restaurants, through doing pachinko, which is kind of seen as dirty and uh, rigged and, you know, it's just gambling, but Japan tolerates it, just like how they tolerate Korean existence in in their own country. So it just, I, I feel like you have to fall into one or two camps. Either you, you know, pass as a Japanese and keep that part of you silent, keep your Korean identity silent and just cut it off completely, or you just wear it as a badge and uh, take whatever struggles that comes um, that comes your way. And it's really interesting how so many Zainichis, they chose to stand by their Korean identities, even though a lot of them have never been to Korea. Like, a lot of them don't speak Korean fluently, 
but they still feel like this tie to their family's motherland. And I always found that really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just the Japan, the state won't let them forget because they're not giving them citizenship, right? Yeah, and I mean, Japan funded a program where they repatriated, quote unquote, repatriated um, the Zainichi to go back to uh, Korea, but albeit it was North Korea. And um, most of the Zainichis that were living in Japan, they did not, they were not from there. And the people who stayed, they stayed because they were afraid of risks. And really, that's, it's a tragedy when you think about it, you know, it's like the people who stayed behind, they didn't really think that they can make a better life for themselves outside of Japan. So they decided to stay in a land where they're treated lesser than and um yeah just to like live that existence where you can't fully be yourself you can't fully accept your heritage it it definitely does something to you it's a different type of generational trauma yeah that i think is something that gets played out i won't say nicely because it's not nice but she does such a detailed job of playing that out because we do get to see those generations that go forward and the levels at which it affects them in different aspects of their life. So the the things that were affecting Noah and Mozasu are not necessarily what's affecting Solomon. Neha and I, in our discussion, felt a change in the third part of the book. And I think we had enjoyed the first two better. But now talking about it a little more and thinking about it in this lens, it feels like she was trying to portray some of that generational trauma and the ripple effects going forward. Yeah, I think Solomon was a character that I, one of my favorite characters, because he just seems like a chill dude. Solomon, the the book character, not the, not the TV character. We can talk about that later. Um, <laughs> and he's just like, we were talking about nursery versus nature, and he's someone who, his father was able to achieve, like, not the American dream, but like a Japanese Korean dream, right? Like he grew up Mm-hmm. without wanting he's able to go get education but we find that even with like even ex- achieving like the immigrant dream like winning the immigrant struggle he's still not accepted he's still not allowed to be japanese he's still not allowed to you know be like and he only need no he only knows how to be japanese right or and then even when he goes off to america for school and gets a fancy job they only see him for what he can do for them which is can you get this lady to sell her house to us because we need to build a bigger building yeah and then they fire him because he is korean and they see it <laughs> yeah. as like they see it as as like his family being part of the yakuza and i'm like okay well is he japanese or is he korean he's he's korean when he's convenient to you and is of mm-hmm. use to you yeah but um he's japanese where like whenever else it's kind of like how japan treated zainichi for a very long time because there were there were koreans who were like tried as uh like japanese criminals japanese war criminals and it's Mm -hmm. like okay but how are you defining their identity when it comes to like the (laughs) actions that i'm trying to i'm trying to like articulate it but i'm like not (laughs) getting there but um yeah, I mean, you you just don't have agency uh, when you're mm-hmm. in that position because it's like you have your oppressors just deciding when your identity is is useful to them or not, and it could just turn on on a dime pretty much. Yeah, and I mean, Solomon, the book character, I feel like goes through the most like 
second generation um, immigrant story possible, which is your parents give you all these resources to go make a life for yourself and you come back and say, I'm going to take over the family business. And it's like, they're kind of disappointed, but kind of happy he's back, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's another like, not impossible, but difficult decision of like, what identity or what part of your identity are you choosing? And what choices have you even been given? Since you did mention the show, have you seen the Apple TV adaptation? And what were your thoughts? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I watched have not finished it. Okay. I have also not okay. finished. I watched the first four episodes because um, my friends who were ahead of me, they told me to stop there. Oh. They said, you're just going to get mad if you continue. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll take your word for it. Interesting. And the first four episodes, beautifully shot. The acting is incredible. And it, it was a much higher production than I expected it. Yeah. To be. And uh, when I look at the writing credits too, I was like, oh, okay, they actually got... Uh, different Korean diasporans to write the script. And to have a show that's in three different languages, Korean, Japanese, English, and to have it be differentiated in subtitles, um, it's a truly global production. I kind of see it as a really historic show. But yeah, I did not finish it. Marvin, but you did. So even from the beginning, it's a beautiful show the vibes are definitely off, especially if you've read the book before. If you haven't read the book before, I think it's fine. It's like, because you have no context. But um, this show had a, maybe not a famously troubled production, but a troubled production. Like, Min Jin Lee left the project. Um, like, if you notice oh. any of the promotion or the credit, she's not on there at all. Like the promotion says based on the best selling novel, but never says by Min Jin Lee. Something happened where she had differences with the producers and she left the show. And watching it, I can kind of see probably where that tension is. And that is Solomon's part of it, Solomon's half mm. of the show. Um, because, like I mentioned, Book Solomon is a completely different character than TV Solomon. And I can't, like, Riru and I have worked around adjacent to Asian American entertainment for a long time. And I don't know if you caught this, but I couldn't see his part of the story without seeing the handprints of like, what if non-Korean people can't relate to this show? We have to make this more like Western. I I did see little fingerprints (laughs) of it. Yeah, like it is a little bit of a shame, but I don't know, like for, for the first four episodes, I thought Solomon was pretty decent. He wasn't the finance bureau in the book, though. Like, he was just such a finance bureau in this. Like, and, like, <laughs> ambitious and cunning, which is not... Solomon's a sweet, soft boy. Like, he's just he just wants to make his parents proud, right? I had heard rumblings that they were going to write out Phoebe's character. And originally, I think they were going to replace her with a white character. Like, he was going to bring, like, a white girlfriend back um, as the point of view character. And I'm glad they did, that they didn't do that. But I'm also, like, Phoebe was the one... Asian American character in the entire book that like a lot of I know a lot of my friends like latched on to um, because her story was also a story of losing culture and like not being able to like measure up to the generations before and so like to have that story completely removed because you wanted to focus on like this dude just trying to like like in the in the TV show the fact that Solomon was actively participating in getting this old woman to sell her house in for like 
nefarious reasons. I, I thought that was just... Mm-hmm. As a Solomon fan, I was I felt betrayed by the show. The Sunja part of it was beautiful. It was well well shot. It was you know, um, and I feel like them bringing book three up. I get why they do it because it's how you again like how you hook the audiences by having like a more contemporary point of view. But like I kind of wish they did go chronologically. Yeah, same here. I thought it was a little weird where they like went back and forth in time, and I understand because you know. They weren't sure if they're going to get picked up for season two. So it's like, okay, let's try to fit everything together into scene, into season one. But I just felt like it it put Sonja's journey kind of like in, in the back burner when, when Solomon's stories came up. And there were also episodes where I was like, I don't know if we really need to hear really need to see the details of the side characters uh activities i feel like it's just taking away from uh the main character who is uh who is sanja so yeah i, I guess <laughs> i don't know i i feel like i'm a little bit more forgiving than than you marvin but that's probably because i haven't seen it in its entirety yeah. the conclusion to solomon's arc is a little frustrating too um i will say um Casting Soji Arai as Musasu was really cool. I really liked his character. I wish I saw more of him. Um, and the fact that he's also a Zainichi, Korean-Japanese, was was a really cool touch. Um, I mean, the, the, the show was casted really well. I mean, even Nolimin Ho as, as Hansu, like, I guess, worked because he, you know, he did bring, like, that, you know, dangerous pretty boy energy, right? Yeah. I can barely speak about this because I only watched half of the first episode, I do want to go back to it, but the reason I kind of stopped there was, to me, the framing of a lot of things felt off. So like you said, starting with Solomon, then going back could have been interesting, and maybe it is if I keep watching. Um, but the title track also threw me a bit, because I don't know if you've seen Modern Love on Prime, where they um, adapt the New York Times column, Modern Love. And the title track of that is kind of different scenes of people from different races, ages, gender identities, and there's like this nice mellow sounding music over it. And the title track for this really reminded me of that. And that totally threw me because I was like, wait, hold on. Like to me, this story is about immigrant struggles and generational trauma and like the breadth of characters that go through this experience. And then it felt like a bit of a Hollywood lens was being put on it, but I could be wrong because i've seen like such a small fraction of it but yeah neha what what did you think i actually love the title track i think we were texting about this when we were watching i think we watched the first couple episodes like around the same time and i agree that it wasn't necessarily the vibe of the book but i thought it was like catchy it was nice it was fun i think it really tried to encompass like the temptation of Jinko, that's kind of what the whole book is about. So yeah. I yeah. I mean I, I do think it's like nice to see these kind of books adapted in this way, especially I'm biased towards TV shows versus movies, because I just feel like you can do so much more with the characters. And to like have, like you said, a global show like this. I have a friend who's not read the book and she absolutely loved it. So I think they probably did a different take on certain elements, but still like a very well produced show. Yeah, I think the key the key is whether or not you've read the book will affect how you enjoy specifically Solomon's part in it because the, that's the part where they mm-hmm. made the most changes. I think the Sunja half of season one is pretty accurate to what the book portrayed. Like, 
I had to fight the urge just to skip the Solomon parts because I'll just like I'll just watch it like the book chronologically. I'll get back to Solomon after like after the book two. You just need like those fan edits, you know, where yeah. they like re-edit it so it's like yeah. chronological. And reorder yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So on our podcast, we do something at the end of our episodes called Filter the Chai. And it's just, we rate the book on a scale of 1 to 10, just based off purely personal reasons. We also ask ourselves the question, will this book stand the test of time? So when we were working on structuring this and like coming up with our goals for this podcast, one of the things that we wanted to highlight was really just diverse stories. Um, because I think we both have been educated in the Western schooling system. And there's a lot of emphasis placed on all these classic writers that have contributed a lot to the craft, but it's a very small section of humanity. And we want to try to broaden that definition as to what is considered not a serious, but um, an important work of literature or writing that people can relate to and that has something to say to people beyond just their immediate community. And so when we ask, will this book stand the test of time? We think, is this going to be a classic in a hundred years? Or is this going to be something that we would want to share with the next generation? I mean, I think we're cheating here because we first read this book like five years ago. So clearly <laughs> yeah, it has tested a bit of a head start, you know, tested time, but also like the fact that Koreans and Japanese readers can now read this in their native language, like that's really incredible. And the fact that the younger generations now have access to this type of story and are able to have it as like an access point to talk about their family history, that's that's a gift. So I do think that it is going to be a classic that continues to bring forth um, important discussions about heritage, about colonialism, and about um, motherhood and the importance of resilience in in um, in Asian women in in Asian immigrant families. So I don't know. I've never really rated a book. <laughs> I usually it's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. If you don't want to, or if that's not something you do, you totally don't have to. Yeah. But but we would love to hear your overall thoughts. Is it okay? So like, I would probably rate it as would I would I lend a copy of my of Pachinko to to someone who has not read it before? Absolutely. And if someone has just only watched the show, then I'll be like, read the book. It's a lot. It goes way more in depth. It's better. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think definitely if if I was to rate it as on a five star scale, I guess it would probably be five stars because I feel like it's a book that has definitely remained a strong like contender since it was published, right? Like published now it's like in so many different languages, people still recommend it all the time. Um, but it's definitely a, a book that, you know, for me growing up, not having access to books like this, right? Like growing up. The most we had was like Joy Luck Club, maybe, um, which is a book written by an Asian American. You know, most of the books that we had about Asians were not written by by us, right? So, like to have this book now available for people to read, to reference, to experience. I think, I think personally, it would like in my personal collection it would stand the test of time. I think definitely, 
Um, it's a very strongly written book. It's a very like it's a type of you know sweeping generational epic story that tends to stand the test of time, right? Yeah, and I think with each generation, as you know, we are further and further away from colonial times and war. Are we though? I, I mean, just in the context of Korea <laughs> and Japan, Marvin. I mean, like now, like nowadays, Japanese view Koreans in a less harsher light. I mean, obviously there's going to be prejudices, but you know, K-pop and Korean beauty, like we we have made it to the global stage. So really, at least they have to begrudgingly respect Koreans' hustles. So, um, <laughs> so, but yeah, like I feel like with each generation, I feel like this book is going to push people more towards reconciliation because this book really does not pull its punches. Um, people are good and bad in every races, in every class. And we just have to be honest about history in order to, you know, have honest discussions and to have reconciliation and to kind of heal that generational trauma from war. So, yeah, I, like I said, I feel like Pachinko is going to be a classic like 10, 15 years from now. And hopefully it's going to be taught in like English writing classes because I'm so tired of seeing yes. just white dead white men in college lectures it's switch it up a bit <laughs> totally we also usually give a recommendation for if you like this book what should be, you pick up next if you could think of a book that you would recommend for someone who liked pachinko is there anything that comes to mind hmm. so there's a new book out called um the straw dogs of the universe um which is written by um, Ye Chun, we just had actually a, a author interview with her this morning. So this is kind of cheating because it's fresh in my mind, but it's kind of the same. It's a multi-generational epic about Chinese Americans in the late 1800s. So uh, about Chinese American, the first Chinese Americans to come to work on the, the transcontinental railroad, um, who worked in Chinatowns and kind of the oppression, prejudice and survival that they had to go through to live in like a country that didn't want them. And I think, you know, it's, and I, I think it's being sold as a book to read if you enjoyed Pachinko by the publishers too. So it's definitely like another, another book that uncovers hidden histories that we didn't learn about in our history classes because, you know, um, it's not exactly pleasant to think about the ways that America kind of screwed its Chinese immigrants when they first came over. I would probably recommend uh, Banyan Moon by uh, Tao Tai. Uh, we did not read this for a book club, but we read it for an author interview. Um, it's also a book that focuses on multi-generational families. Um, it's about three generations of Vietnamese American women, and they're reeling from the death of their matriarch and family history that was buried and um, very like immigrant secrets come to light. And it takes place in this really gothic house. So if you're really into like Jane Eyre vibes, I feel like you'll really like this book. Um, it, it is very spooky. So should these like say less, please? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm already buying it. <laughs> it's my next read. 
Cool. And then zooming out from Pachinko, just to kind of round out our discussion and our interview with you guys, looking back on your experience since you started podcasting, are there books or interviews or certain experiences that stand out that have been your favorites? Hmm. This is hard because we've read so many books um, over the last yeah. like seven years now. Um, a book that I go back to a lot that I recommend to people, whether they want to or not, is Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho, which was still remains one of my favorite reads that uh, Rhi returned me onto uh, when she picked it for our book club. It's a um, Regency-era alternate history story about um, society of wizards and what happens when a black man becomes head wizard. We jokingly call him like the adventures of Wizard Obama, pretty much. Um <laughs> And it's funny, it, and it's a really fun book that Zen writes in the style of a Regency era, like story of manners and etiquette. You know, um, it features a Austin esque like ingenue who comes in and kind of shakes things up because she is a. Do you remember she's South Asian, right? She's like part South Asian. The the main character. Yeah, she's part Indian. Yeah, who comes in and kind of she's essentially like the chosen one that all of a sudden becomes like the most powerful wizard. Um, and because she uses her her womanly biology to, um, you know, to make contracts with like three three demons. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm surprised that that stuck with you, Marvin. That was like the third book we read for book club. Yeah, and I try to get other people to read it. And the, the pitch is so wild that they're like, I don't know about this, but it is a really fun book. I was going to say you're killing it with the book recommendations. <laughs> like Jane Austen, Harry Potter, yeah. where... Ah, uh, for me, oh goodness, like, the book that has really stuck with me, it's really hard to to think about. I guess, like, personally, because of, like, I'm an emotional reader, uh, probably The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Ko. It is a memoir um, by a Korean-American writer who was separated from her parents at the age of 16 because her family goes back to Korea because her father gets a promotion. So she and her brother are left in America. And, you know, it's it's a really hard time for her because, you know, she's losing her parents and she just feels kind of weightless. And she struggles with um, bulimia and she struggles with, um, with forgiving her parents. Like she... She finds a box of letters that her mother had written to her, and her mother never sent her these letters. So uh, that is kind of like the the frame of this memoir. Like each chapter shows like a scan of the letter that her mother wrote to her as a as a kid. So um, as a Korean American who kind of had like the opposite path to her because like my parents also like could have gone back to Korea when I was like 15 16 but we decided to stay it's it's interesting for me to like picture oh like this could have been my life and um surprisingly enough um EJ Co listened to our discussion and she oh, that's so uh, cool yeah and she was like oh like I feel I forgot what she exactly said online Marvin but she she said something I don't remember exactly, but she said, I think this is the reason why I wrote this book, oh my is gosh. to hear this type of discussion. Yeah. That must have meant everything. Wow. I was 
I was mortified. I was like, what do you mean you listen to us talk about your book and go in depth? I'm like, I thought authors did not read reviews or listen to reviews. Like how brave or how like masochistic are you? But I'm really glad that she enjoyed our conversation. That's awesome. That sounds like a really good book too. I'm going to have to take note of all of these. Yeah, me too. Awesome. Well, thanks for having us on. It was a lot of fun revisiting this book that um with y'all it was fun to have other people in in the mic room to be able to bounce <laughs> yeah. ideas with yeah we're, we're so lonely we're such hermits that's the thing with book club podcasts you know right you're just online with one person we're all we're all introverts but we <laughs> secretly want to make friends we want book friends <laughs> yes yes yeah i'm really i'm really glad that we were able to talk talk with you guys yeah. yeah, us too. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Shruti, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you, so send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.